Welcome to Behavioral Groups, the podcast that explores stories, science, and secrets from the world's brightest thought leaders for the curious at heart. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to investigate the aspects of behavioral science that will improve your well-being, your relationships, and your organization by helping you find your groove. We talk to best-selling authors and researchers to uncover insights into better understanding our behaviors. And we like to have a little fun while we're doing it, too. This episode is fun for Tim and me for a couple of different reasons. For me, it was the opportunity to speak with a guest who has studied and written a lot on the expectation effect, a phenomena that I find super, super fascinating. And I'm sure that you, our listeners, will as well. And for me, it was the opportunity to record our discussion live, face-to-face with our guest in a super cool studio in London. I think it's the place they call Abbey Road. <laughs> you, you can't tell that you're you're still buzzing about this at all. I, you know? I am. I know. It's I pretty, pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. It really is. I am still buzzing. I mean, just walking into Abbey Road's lobby, you know, and they're there right next to the reception desk is the original manuscript for the orchestration for Paul McCartney's song, Yesterday. Like, oh man, it was like a big fat club hitting me right over the head that this is the place where it was scored and recorded. It was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Of course, another reason that this was fun and is that we were joined at Abbey Road by our friend, fellow behavioral scientist and fellow podcast host, Christian Hunt. That was fantastic too. Christian joined us for these Abbey Road sessions and he's going to be publishing them on his podcast, which is the show Human Risk. So you've got to check that out because it's fantastic and and Christian does a fantastic job. Uh, but of course, after you've listened to the version on Behavior Groups. <laughs> of course, after that, you can go there. So I had, I had super high expectations for these sessions, Tim. And you know, looking back, they 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 exceeded those expectations in oh, every yeah. way, and, and Christian was a huge part of that. And speaking of expectations, let's tell our listeners about our guest for this episode. Definitely. Well, our guest is David Robson, and he's an award-winning science journalist who got deeply interested in the effects of expectations several years ago, and which started him digging into the topic with literally wild abandon. Yeah, David was curious about how our expectations mold how we think, feel, and behave. And in his new book, The Expectation Effect, How Your Mindset Can Change Your World, he brings forth research from a variety of fields that shows how our mindsets influence how we navigate the world, probably much more than we realize. And I have to say, Tim, that so far, this has been my favorite book of 2022. Wow. That is saying a lot. I mean, we've we've read a lot of great books uh, in 2022, and you've read a lot of great books in 22. <laughs> so that, that's saying a lot, man. It, it is. And not only was this book great, but this interview exceeded my already high expectations for what I had for it. <laughs> well, I would agree with you there. We covered a lot of ground with David from how expectations impact and change our perceptions, our behavior, and even our physiology. Yeah, and, oh, that was oh, cool. It, And David was great at being super open about the catalysts in his life for being so interested in the expectation effect. It was truly a deep and insightful conversation that we know that you, our listeners, will enjoy. And when you do enjoy it, we hope that you share it with a friend or two 
so that they can enjoy it as well. Absolutely. So with that, sit back with a cold glass of high expectations and expect to be blown away by our Abbey Road studio recording with David Robson. David Robson, welcome to Behavior Grooves at Abbey Road Studios. Yeah, I mean, it's my complete pleasure, but it's not a more iconic location than this, really. <laughs> no, I, I would I would agree. We always start with a speed round. Kurt, do you want to? Oh, I'm going to start with a speed round. So, I, David, I would like to know, do you prefer tea or coffee? Uh, tea. Imagine that. Here we are. Know. Here we are in England, and you prefer tea over coffee. All right. That's good. If you went on a vacation, a holiday, uh, would you prefer to have a fixed itinerary or no itinerary at all? Mm, Somewhere in between, actually. I like to know where I'm staying, but to have this um, kind of opportunity to be spontaneous as well. See, that aligns. I like that. At least the the first night, you want to be able to know where you're sleeping. So there you go. And let's try one and say, would you prefer to record a podcast on Zoom or at Abbey Road Studios? Uh, Abbey Road Studios, (laughs) obviously. (laughs) Well, at least we got that right. I mean, if nothing else goes here, you got that going. Can positive thinking eliminate our unhappiness and anxiety? Positive thinking alone can't if you're taking this kind of attitude of being like this kind of Pollyanna figure who just looks at the world uh, through this kind of rose-tinted lens. But actually, if you apply positive thinking a bit more rationally, a bit more kind of objectively, then yes, it can be very beneficial. Uh-huh, that So we're getting into your book, obviously, The Expectation Effect. And it for uh, all the listeners out there, um, it is by far my favorite book of the year, so I definitely go out and read it. Um, but I, I, what I loved about this book is that you're bringing in a, a, a lot of research, because that's what you do, right? You, you, you write about science and you bring in the research and kind of, uh, kind of culminate it. If you had to describe this book for our listeners and, you know, a short kind of the elevator speech type thing, how would you, how would you describe this book? So I'd say the basic concept is that the expectation effect describes our capacity to form self-fulfilling prophecies, and that happens through three main mechanisms, which is changes to our perception, changes to our behaviour, and changes to our physiology. And actually, all of those mechanisms are really important, and they're interrelated, and we shouldn't kind of neglect one over another one. They're, you know, they're all critically important but you know what you see is that the expectation effect can have incredible outcomes you know it can even change your longevity um so yeah it's it can't perform miracles but it certainly does have like a really important role in our health and well-being and you know even how long we live how do you how would you define expectation effect for those who are sitting here going all right i've never heard of expectation effect what what would you define that specific piece as so i mean that is kind of how we it's this phenomenon where we create these self-fulfilling prophecies but okay. i would always give an example as well when i'm explaining it and i do think the placebo effect is a you know it's very well known very familiar and very well researched and you know we know that that's not this kind of miracle cure but that often you know, a patient's beliefs about the effectiveness of a treatment can change the outcomes. And we, we know that that can change our subjective perception of what we're experiencing, but also it can have objective physiological effects too. So if you're taking a placebo painkiller, 
your brain actually can start to produce its own endogenous opioid painkillers. So, and you can see that activity in brain scans, and you can see how that's, you know, actually them reducing their pain in some kind of meaningful way. It's not just them kind of imagining that they're feeling better, they actually are feeling better. Now, the placebo effect isn't 100% universal. Not everyone responds to it, right? This is a, a relatively well, it's a significant portion of the population that responds to placebos. Is expectation in general something that is going to have some effect, some Im, you know, some implications for some portion of the people, but not everyone? So I think it really depends on the kind of domain you're talking about, actually. Okay. So because I do think, you know, if you're talking about fitness compared to kind of the clinical setting, or if you're talking about diet or aging. You know, you have to kind of look at what people's original kind of baseline beliefs are. And so, you know, you could have someone who has like already has a very good appraisal of their own kind of physical fitness and, you know, they love doing exercise. And then I would say, well, actually, they don't need to change their expectations. And if you kind of prime them to think that they're, you know, naturally good at exercise, that's not going to have any effect because they already believe it. Um, similarly, someone might have such a deeply ingrained belief that they're no good at exercise, yeah. then exper uh, an experimental manipulation isn't really going to be that beneficial because you have to kind of go deeper with them, I think. You would have to kind of work harder to change their beliefs. So yeah, I think like there's definitely an average effect across the population. And I think that in different domains, people could um, benefit from the expectation effect in one way or another. But um, yeah, it's going to depend on the person and on the circumstances. So just to follow that up, are there what, what domains have you seen the greatest impact? So I, I think like one that's very common would be stress and people's responses to stress. And I think this is because within our culture, we have such a pervasive kind of belief that we're fed through the you know, media through, you know, books and like magazines and, you know, even, you know, from health organisations, we have this idea that stress is inherently dangerous and it has, has to be avoided and suppressed, like you should suppress your anxiety or you won't perform well. And what we see actually is that by changing that mindset about stress without getting people to kind of pretend they're not feeling the stress and also without deceiving them, but just letting them kind of accept that the stress can be really unpleasant, but it can convey some kind of useful meaning to them and that actually the physiological changes we feel with stress things like the racing heart well that's adaptive and that it can actually be helpful you know certainly in the short term to have that kind of oxygenated blood pumped to your brain we do see that when you help to educate people about that that stress has this kind of potential positive side it can be energizing it can sometimes be enhancing that actually then you do see a really meaningful effect on i think quite a large number of people that um and it can do everything from you know changing how well they respond in a high pressure exam or giving a, a public talk but also it changes things like the how quickly they recover from the stressful situation and that's really important because that's going to reduce the long-term effects of the stress too if you if each stressful event only lasts for you know a, an hour or so rather than like then lingering as this kind of prolonged anxiety for the day that has a, a benefit for your health as a whole over months and years and i think you, you brought up in the book and i know i think i've heard this as well but cortisol levels are affected by this i mean a number of the, as you talked about at the beginning right there's the perception change the behavior change but there's also a physiological change that can happen just because of the way that we're thinking about something which is the piece that just blows my mind in this whole thing it's like 
I understand the way we think about something and the expectations we do that, but our body actually is responding differently in some of these situations. Is that true? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, you know, stress is one of my favorite examples of this. So, you know, if you have a negative view of stress, you tend to see like very big fluctuations in cortisol, like extreme fluctuations. And, you know, that is not so good for you, really. It's kind of getting you too energized in a way because you're looking for danger. You're not really looking for opportunity. You're just looking for the danger around you. And, you know, that's going to be overwhelm your thinking if you're doing an exam. So you don't have the cognitive resources to actually think of the correct answer. You know, if you're giving a talk and you have such high levels of cortisol, you're more likely to focus on, you know, all of the frowning faces in the crowd rather than like being able to step back and seeing that actually people are just paying attention yeah. to you. Um, but also, so well, you do see a more moderate change in cortisol when you have this kind of positive mindset. But also you see um, increases in anabolic hormones. So that's things like DHEAS or testosterone. Mm -hmm. And actually these anabolic hormones, they're really important for kind of the growth of tissue and maintenance of tissue. And so it's that ratio actually between the cortisol and then these other kind of beneficial hormones that, you know, actually determines the long term effects of the stress too. I was just thinking that probably the stress is why Tim can't ask any good questions. Is that how that works? <laughs> did you did you say something, Kurt? I'm sorry. <laughs> I was just focusing on David. <laughs> but, I mean, there's, there's, there's something interesting here, which is on one level, all the things you're talking about, they have a useful purpose. And it's just that we're we're not using them. So so the way I, uh, you know, as you were describing it in, in in the book and the way the way you talk about it, it's my sense is sort of that we are potentially underusing certain things or overusing them, and that gets us to bad outcomes. But fundamentally, these things all serve a purpose, and we can if we channel that in the right way, we can get the best out of ourselves. So you're really looking. It's, it's almost a sort of hacking process of saying when does this work really well, and when's it beneficial, and when should we absolutely try and dampen it down and stop it. Yeah, that's absolutely how I see it. And especially with something like stress, you know, we know we evolved that way because actually it is really beneficial, you know, not just in the fight or flight response when you're kind of fleeing from a predator or, you know, fighting it, but also, you know, we have that more moderate kind of um, stress response, which would be beneficial if you're, you know, challenging a rival to be the leader of your group or if you're kind of going on a prolonged hunt, you know. So, yeah, these all evolved for a reason. And I think what happens now is that we sometimes like catastrophize our thinking and I think that's really wow. that's like wow. that's especially with stress I think that's where the problem's coming from is that you have this kind of baseline anxiety like you know getting the new job passing the exam is really important for you so you feel anxious because it's meaningful that in itself isn't really damaging that's just getting you energized but then we have this assumption on top of that that the anxiety itself is going to lead us to fail and that it's going to be bad for our health. So that creates this kind of second layer of stress. And I think it's that that we want to eliminate, really. And because actually, like those assumptions that the anxiety is going to damage your performance, well, that's not objectively true. It can be true if you have the negative stress mindset, but not if you have the positive stress mindset. I love that. Yeah, I love I love the way that you're talking about it. Catastrophizing our thinking is really uh, a, a fantastic uh, way of thinking about this. It, it also kind of reminds me of how uh, we conflate um, anxiety when it comes from uh, uncertainty or risk, which are two really different things in the world today, but they feel the same. And, and so does the expectation effect kind of get us to changing the way we feel? Like, does it actually change our sort of our, of course, there's physiological changes. We actually feel differently emotionally. Mm, so I think we do. Um, so I would say, you know, when 
the kind of scientists roll out these interventions, they are quite careful to say to these, you know, to their participants that like you don't have to like enjoy feeling stressed. Like it might. <laughs> Good. <laughs> we're, we're glad. We're glad about you. that. Okay. Because you know it can feel unpleasant, especially if you've got you know these assumptions around it. But it's just kind of recognizing, kind of cognitively, that like it may be there for a reason. But actually, I think once you do get through that stage, you know, I see these as kind of incremental changes that you make when you're changing your mindset. It's not like it all happens at once. I mean, yeah. what? I, <laughs> <laughs> I thought there was, we were looking for a oh, mir- miracle. That's right. Not a miracle. Okay, sorry. Because I am, um, I, I would say I've done that myself with like my attitudes to public speaking. And it was like, you know, I kind of went through that first step of changing kind of cognitively how I appraised the stress. And then I saw that had this kind of, you know, immediate kind of benefit. It didn't make me this kind of amazing, charismatic speaker, but it did mean I like like I, that I performed better, that yeah. I kind of felt less distracted, you know, during the talk. But it wasn't like I suddenly felt like just really, you know, positive throughout the talk. Like I still I want had, to do this every day, yeah. every, every moment of I still, every day. Exactly. I still had the butterflies in my stomach. But actually yeah. then over time, like the more I did it, the more I, I got to realize that actually those feelings of anxiety were closer to excitement than kind of fear. Yeah. And, it, uh, you know, I, I mentioned in my book, like, uh, Billie Jean King kind of spoke about, because mm-hmm. um, she hated public speaking, but yeah. she saw that it was, you know, her responsibility and it came with part of the job if she wanted to win the matches she had to take that that on as well being a spokesperson and so she said that pressure is privilege and so I think that's how it also changed my attitude it's because the the stress I was feeling was because it was so important to me because I want to communicate these ideas as well as I can and actually recognizing that is also really powerful I think in changing the stress response and helping you to be more positive what you just said there just prodded my, me to think about this idea that so the tool that we can use is the reframing aspect of this. So reframing public speaking as this is part of my job and therefore it's different. And and I see that just in everyday life, right? Where you're you're going in and you're doing something that you might not like, like, uh, you know, having to work with Tim. And then um, I, I kind of have to go, but it's my job. And so I, it makes it that much better and we can laugh about it. It's not worth the pay. <laughs> you, it's not. Um, is, is reframing a key component then of how you can use the expectation effect to your benefit? Yeah, it really is. And I think, you know, we knew from, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy that reframing can be really effective in helping people to deal with things like anxiety and depression. Um, And then I think what the new science has really shown is that actually this process is then also bringing about these physiological changes too, and, you know, broader behavioural changes. Um, So, you know, when you change your stress mindset, it's not just about the physiology, actually. What happens is that your, your thinking can become more creative and more proactive. So you start approaching the situations that were scaring you rather than avoiding them. So mm. if I was really nervous about a talk in the past, I might have just tried to leave the preparation till the day before because I just didn't want to think about it. But actually with a more positive mindset by recognising it's kind of an essential part of my job and actually my choice to do that. Like I don't yeah. have to do this yeah. job. Like by recognising that, then it, you know, I was more likely to prepare more in advance to rehearse on my own. And so that in itself is then going to like reduce the stress you're feeling. So it's all, it's kind of has effects, you know, immediately and then kind of in the midterm and longer term too. It's it's very powerful for that reason. And reframing is just so fundamental to all of that. I love that. 
as, as you sort of look at it, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by what, what drove you to look at this in the first place. Because it's something when you talk about it, it's something we all recognise. But I think I, I already looked at it and sort of accepted that well, that's just the way things are. But you've you've kind of gone there and said, well, I'm going to analyse. What what was it that that inspired you to look at that? Mm, so I mean, as a science writer, I'd always you know kind of covered the placebo effect when new kind of results came out. But um, but then it was a weird coincidence. It kind of between a kind of collision between my personal and professional life. So I was going through this period of depression, and I just took these very standard antidepressant pills. And my uh, doctor, you know, just as as she's obliged to do, she told me that one of the potential side effects would be that I would experience kind of bad headaches. And then I did experience them, you know, almost straight away, like the next day that when I started taking the pills, you know, it was really tough to kind of focus on my work. You know, I felt like it was like a kind of, you know, pickaxe through my brain, like the pain was so sharp. Um, but at the same time, I was actually writing this article about the nocebo effect, yeah. which is the opposite of the placebo effect. So with the placebo effect, it's good intentions producing good outcomes. With the uh, nocebo effect, it's when your expectations are negative and you think you're going to become sick, and then you do. And what the research had shown very clearly was that lots of drug side effects, especially things like headaches or nausea, you know, fatigue, all of those, actually do arise from the expectations. So in the clinical trials where you have people taking a placebo pill or the actual drug, well, the people People taking the placebo pill see some of the benefits of the drug, but they also often experience the side effects that they've been warned about. Um, and that was seems, you know, I looked into the data for the pills I was taking, and you know that seemed to explain a lot of the side effects that people were feeling. And that recognition of that fact, you know, it wasn't like I was kind of then started you know, saying a mantra to myself or anything like that. I just opened my mind to that possibility that actually the pain wasn't actually inevitable and that it could have been produced by these expectations. And that, you know, was enough to resolve the pain. So, you know, I kind of learned that in the morning, went out for lunch, had like a big glass of water. And by the end of the day, the pain had gone and it never came back. So that showed to me how powerful expectations could be. And that was a few years ago. I, you know, kind of kept on collecting papers and eventually I'd amassed, you know, like 400 peer-reviewed results that had looked at all elements of expectation in our life. So, you know, concerning stress, fitness, diet, sleep, um, ageing. And it was at that point really where I felt like this was a huge story. You know, they were all interlinked, but they all needed to be treated kind of separately too. And that was why I wanted to write a book to kind of explore it in that level of detail. Yeah, I think there's been lots of really great research out there and I think the missing piece that I think the expectation effect, the, the book that you wrote kind of does is kind of weaves those together. One of our favorite researchers on this is Aliyah Crum uh, out of Stanford. And so we did a deep dive into the milkshake study, which is still <laughs> right. I, to this day blows my mind away. And, and anybody who wants to can listen to our back episode on that. But uh, you quote Aliyah in, in the book, and I want to just make sure I get this quote right. So let me say it, sir. Yeah, um, you quote her saying, uh, our minds aren't passive observers simply perceiving reality as it is. Our minds actually change reality. In other words, the reality we will experience tomorrow is in part a product of the mindset we hold today. I just love that quote. And I would love for you to kind of talk about, so expand on that. What What is this, like the, the mindsets today impacting us tomorrow? What? How is that? Uh, how would you expand on that for our listeners to just say, what can they take from this? Mm, I mean, 
<laughs> so that was um, Ali was talking at the World Economic Forum, I think, and you know, immediately caught my attention, like because it's a very bold statement. But, it you know, is her research, and then all of these other, you know, it's not. It's not just one lab. It's like across the world, people are finding these um, the same results. So it's very robust. And yet, I think what what um, Ali is really getting at there is the fact that you know we do see these kind of short term effects, like with the milkshake study. Um, if someone hasn't listened to, you know, if listeners haven't heard that episode before. You know, she showed that just the labelling of a milkshake could change people's hormonal response to yeah, the food. The ghrelin levels in your yeah. gut are changed. It's not, yeah. And so, you know, that is significant in itself. But I think what she's really getting at there is that also it's like the, you know, the culmination of all of these expectation effects, like all of the beliefs we're carrying around, like that is shaping our experience every day. And it's also kind of putting us on different uh, trajectories. And that's what I really wanted to emphasise in my book. It's like, you know, changing your expectations isn't going to be a replacement for changing your diet or doing lots of exercise. (laughs) But it can, but your beliefs about those activities will shape, you know, how, like, partly how effective they are, but also how, you know, easy it is to kind of stick to those goals. Because if you're dieting, but because of your mindset, your ghrelin levels are, you know, much higher than they would be if you had a different mindset about your food, if you saw it as being this indulgence. Well, that's going to make you, you know, have loads more hunger pangs. It could potentially change your metabolism. We know it could kind of slow down your metabolism, make you feel more lethargic to conserve energy. It's just going to make the process of dieting feel so much more difficult. So you're more likely to give up. What, What I love, too, about that, that kind of it got to me thinking is it's this idea that we all have these mindsets, but we don't examine them. So we we don't actually think about the mindset I'm bringing into dieting. I don't think about the mindset that I have about stress. I don't think about the mindset I have about sleep. And thus, by not thinking about that mindset, not examining that in ourselves, we're stuck with whatever that preset from society, from our families, from whatever past that we've had. So that past is now impacting our future. Whereas to your point, when you looked at that, you know, the side effects that your doctor talked about, but then you examined it a little bit more and you can re reshape that, reframe that as we talked about, then you can actually go forward and say, yeah, it's not a miracle. It's not going to just change the world, but at least you can be purposeful about it. Yeah, exactly. That's it. And it's, you know, it's like one element that has just been neglected, I think, a lot. It's like you might have good intentions to go to the gym. Like I know I did before I kind of examined. <laughs> I always have good intentions. <laughs> yes. My intentions are fantastic. <laughs> oh, my God. And actually, you know, I kind of like did have the kind of willpower to kind of go regularly, but I really hated the process. And then actually, and also I didn't see like a huge amount of uh, progress while I was doing it. And so I saw that actually changing my mindset about exercise actually just like kind of took the brakes off of what I was doing. So it felt more pleasurable. And also, you know, I did then start to kind of build my stamina, you know, build my strength. It was, yeah, kind of transformational that way. And, you know, but going back to that, you know, about the idea about like whether we examine our our assumptions or not. Well, I had just, you know, I hadn't like loved gym classes in school, to be honest, because I was like the youngest in my year. I was quite, you know, short for my age for most of high school. Um, So I was always like the, you know, last in the race. Like, so I I had always had this kind of assumption that I wasn't, I just wasn't cut out for exercise. It would always be difficult for me. But really, when you look at that, well, like there's no good factual basis for that. Like I was never, I never had the makings of being like, 
an Olympic athlete. But, you know, that also didn't mean that I couldn't enjoy exercise and benefit from exercise. So, yeah, I think that was that's something that is I I kind of talk about our expectations as being like the air we breathe because Mm. they, you know, kind of permeate us. But we don't we often just don't even recognize that that we just uh, kind of think that, you know, the truth without really examining like what is the evidence behind that? I I love the way you frame that, too, because it's it's not as if. You know, I'm tired of reading self-help books that are just like, you can be an Olympic athlete. You can do whatever you want to do. The, you know, the, the world is your oyster. It's like, give me a break. I'm never going to be a guy who can dunk a basketball. Just mm-hmm. never. I, I, aside, Yeah, okay, yeah. Kurt's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> so uh, kind of just given my height, that's just never going to happen. But I could enjoy the game of basketball. I could still go and, and c- kind of consider it you know something that's worthwhile, and I think that that's a just that's that's a really cool frame in and of itself. I um, that was just my editorial. Now my question, <laughs> my question is, is this? I'm I'm curious about. It seems like marketers have been doing and advertising, you know, executives have been doing this for some time. The Winston tastes good like a cigarette should, you know. They aren't they kind of setting our trying to mold our expectation to think that that cigarette with all that nicotine is going to be fantastic you know before I taste it and then some people actually like it I mean they totally are and you know because I've kind of you know have spoken to marketers about the expectation effect and they do they poo poo it they're just like no 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 so they they get it but they've also asked me kind of but you know they they're like they're always careful you know, in their own work, not to kind of raise expectations to the point that, you know, the product won't meet them, meet Uh the expectations, because then that leads to disappointment is so much worse from a consumer point of view. Um, And so, you know, sometimes they say they would actually deliberately underplay some of these elements, especially if you're talking about like a theme park or, you know, some kind of experience, they want people to kind of come to the conclusions themselves. And I think that's a really good approach. And, uh, you know, I think that actually just applies to all the expectation effects. It's like, if you're going to the gym, and you think you're telling yourself through some kind of like, you know, mantra, I am an Olympic athlete. (laughs) (laughs) And then you're still taking, you know, 30 minutes to do like a 5k run. (laughs) Maybe not an Olympic time. (laughs) And then you you're gonna you know, feel disappointed and you assume the expectation effect can't work. But like, well, the expectation effect can't produce immediate gains, you know, to that kind of level. So I think having like overly optimistic expectations is damaging. But what we need to do is just look at kind of whether we're doing that kind of, whether we're like needlessly pessimistic, whether we are (laughs) catastrophizing, kind of correcting that, bringing it up to this kind of mid, sweet midpoint, I think, where you're kind of, questioning whether you're capable of um, of more than you're achieving currently without trying to kind of tell yourself that you're, you know, kind of the greatest person in the world. You know, you don't need to do yeah. that to benefit from the expectation. And, and I mean, it's interesting when you, you talked about advertising, Tim, which is a sort of positive framing. And I'm, and I'm struck, David, by the, the, the negative one around, okay, watch out, you may suffer these particular, you know, take this drug and the, these are the, we have to disclose the side effects. And if I think about sort of products that are sold on a negative basis, so insurance, look at all these awful things that might happen to you. There's that, that flip side of it. And I wondered, I mean, it's, it's in many respects, it seems to me we, we, we warn people of things for good reason. 
but but we're driving expectations in a direction that's really not helpful. And and I wondered how we balance that because obviously you, do, you don't want people to sort of think, well, there's no risk here whatsoever. But equally, if you're looking for danger, as you say in the book, you'll find it. Yeah, I mean, and that is the big problem with kind of applying the placebo effect and you know countering the nocebo effect in medicine because you know doctors, I think they are ethically obliged to kind of explain the risks of a procedure or treatment to the patient. So the question is, well, how can you do that without um, kind of worsening their symptoms or making their experience, you know, a lot more um, uncomfortable than it really should be? So there's some research on this, and it's all about kind of the way you phrase the risks, essentially. So, you know, framing, you know, we've known from like behavioural economics that framing can be super important. So, you know, people respond more positively to something that's 5% um, that's 95% fat free rather than 5% fat. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> Gets me every time. My, that's my favourite. <laughs> yeah. And so actually the same goes for like nocebo effects. What you find is that, you know, this is still ongoing research, but it seems to be that if you tell someone that one in 10 people are going to suffer from headaches, then that kind of creates a stronger nocebo effect than if you tell them that, you know, some people experience headaches, but... of people don't because you're focusing more on the the positive. You're still giving the same information, but you're just phrasing it in a way that I think stops people becoming um, too kind of focused on the negative. You talk in the book about the brain being a prediction machine. Can you talk a little bit about how that plays into the expectation effect and what that implies? Mm, yeah, I mean, this is a really fashionable theory in neuroscience and especially the um, kind of neuroscience of consciousness. Yeah. And this idea is that the brain as a prediction machine is constantly building kind of simulations of the world around it. So it's based on our previous experiences, then based on the context that you find yourself in. It's kind of trying to simulate, you know, the whole world around you, like the, the sensory input that you're having, you know, what you're seeing, what you're hearing, what you're tasting. And often it's shaping that sensory data because often the sensory data by itself is quite, it's ambiguous, it's messy, you know, so these simulations are helping to kind of refine that so they can fill in the gaps if, you know, you're missing some important piece of data, but kind of from what's, you know, from the surrounding pieces of data and then from the context, it kind of knows roughly kind of what to add to that image to make it make sense. Um, Other times it might be toning down kind of, uh, sensory data that it doesn't think is so significant. So, you know, you're listening to like a, a voice on a crackly telephone line. Well, if you're familiar with the person's accent and you kind of roughly right. know what they're going to say, right. it's kind of amplifying like the meaningful words and kind of downplaying the static. So we know that that does happen. We know it has a huge effect on perception and it can explain all kinds of visual illusions. It can yeah. explain, you know, <laughs> how people might hear like a voice in the static of a radio, you know, believing it's um, a kind of dead relative. It's because of the prediction machine kind <laughs> of, you know, leading you down this line. And, you know, it works well enough for what it has to do for our survival, but that doesn't mean it's totally flawless. But I think with the, what we then know is that these simulations are actually then feeding into the um, the way the brain kind of 
prepares the body for the challenges it's going to face. So it will use those simulations to change levels of hormones, to change the activity of the nervous system, the digestive system, to raise or lower inflammation, all of these things, um, you know, all of which served an important purpose in our past to kind of prepare us for injury, for example, but which now could also contribute to those placebo and nocebo effects. I love that. I, I, I can't miss the opportunity to integrate a little bit of uh, Abbey Road connected to the Beatles, connected to George Harrison in, a, in an interview several years after he had been to India and learned uh, Transcendental Meditation. Dick Cavett said, so now that you're seven years into this Transcendental Meditation, you know, all this peace and harmony, do you ever get stage fright? And George Harrison very quickly said, oh, of course. Of course I do. I, I, of course I still do. And I remember when I first saw that interview, I thought, oh, no, transcendental meditation doesn't work. <laughs> oh, this is awful. But he quickly followed it up with, uh, you can't stop those feelings, but how he channeled it, how he framed it, and maybe this was even before CBT, you know, he, the way he framed it actually became something positive. But he didn't deny the fact that he still got butterflies going on stage after all those years of... Of, of performances. I'm editorializing again. You I? are. Yeah. That's okay. Great, that's good. Okay. That's usually my job. <laughs> you you are stealing my job. What is going on? Um, well, but but reframing is. Would you say reframing is the central story uh, to, to what, what to other the tools? What other yeah, tools? Let's talk about the tools. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I do think reframing in itself is important. I think applying critical thinking is really essential. So that is you know, questioning your assumptions and questioning what you're being fed. So, um, for example, like in the chapter on ageing, you know, so essentially like our beliefs about the ageing process, whether we think it's going to be, you know, pos broadly positive or broadly negative, whether we associate ageing with, you know, growth and wisdom or with um, kind of decline and disability and vulnerability. Well, that can have this kind of knock-on long-term effect on your health um, through, you know, kind of changes to to your kind of chronic stress levels, essentially. If you feel vulnerable because you assume ageing is going to bring you disability, that raises your stress levels, it raises inflammation, and then that has all these knock-on knock effects that can, you know, have um, important ramifications for your risk of dementia, even your longevity. So, you know, that is, those are kind of the facts. We know the mechanism is quite well established. But, um, but how do we deal with that? And I think one important way that people can deal with that is to kind of think critically about the kind of ageist messages they're getting from mm -hmm. our culture, which are just so pervasive. Um, you know, in adverts and films and, you know, the books we read, even in our interactions with other people, the kind of jokes people make as you hit like a kind of milestone age. Um, yeah. It's, you don't know, say a word. Age, don't, right? don't say a word, Kurt. Don't you dare say a word. And lots of people, you know, kind of, endorse them themselves and I think yeah. you know this is the problem is that you might be making those jokes when you're like 30 or 40 and then <laughs> you know you reach like 60 70 or 80 and suddenly it's applying to you and you've internalized that message yeah. so actually critical thinking there is really important and that you should be questioning you know why do I assume that uh you know it's going to be this way and how could I you know look for like the positive role models that actually of people who just have continued with their kind of creative output yep. they've tried new things they've learned new skills they've kind of broadened their horizons as they get older um all of that <laughs> <laughs> 
all of those kinds of skills, I think, are so important. In you know, uh, they have this kind of uh, protective effect. It's almost like immunizing yourself against the the kind of prejudice around you. Yeah, I, and, and you look at that from a societal perspective, and uh, being in the West and you know Europe and and America, there's a definite different perception of aging than maybe some of the uh, more communal kind of Asian cultures where it is that wisdom of being older and different pieces. And so, obviously, just being able to understand the culture that you are raised in is bringing some of these messages that you've internalized, I think is a really big piece of this. Yeah, absolutely. One piece that actually impacted me from your book was you talk a lot about sleep. And what I found really, really fascinating was just this idea that again it kind of it goes on to the the piece about the anxiety that you talked about the uh, you have anxiety but then you have anxiety about the anxiety and the different things and the people yeah, who the uh, like myself have some types of insomnia at some points it's the all right I'm kind of not falling asleep but now I'm worried about not falling asleep and that makes it even harder to fall asleep but what was really fascinating was just people's perceptions on how well they slept and how well they performed the next day and felt the next day versus the actual, like when they did tracking and measurement of those. And the idea that people who actually, you know, oh, I didn't sleep very good, everything else was really bad. But when they looked at it, you, you actually got pretty decent sleep. You you slept really well versus the person who, oh, I slept great. But they looked at it and they're going, no, you were up and down and you didn't sleep at all. But they, but that, that, kind of interpretation of how well their sleep was then led to differences in the next day. Can you expand on that? Yeah, exactly. So there are people, um, so my partner's one of these people who's a complaining good sleeper. So. <laughs> oh, don't you just hate that? Oh my god! So if he, because he's always had good sleep, um, yeah. essentially, oh. but then if he wakes up for, you know, five or ten minutes, yeah. um, he kind of exaggerates that and he's like, like the next day, he ruined everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and he, you know, then there's this assumption that actually, you know, his concentration is going to suffer. He's going to be irritable. Well, those become self-fulfilling prophecies. And uh, the science uh, shows this very clearly. And yeah. the converse. And I would count myself in this camp, like naturally, even before I wrote the expectation effect, was that I'm um, a kind of non-complaining bad sleeper. Yeah. And that you know, I will look at the alarm clock, and it could be that I wake up at two and then get to sleep at six or yeah. something. But I kind of try always just framed that as being like, well, you know, this isn't ideal. And if it had continued day after day after day, then like I would obviously want to go to get medical treatment for that. But on those occasions where that had happened, I would think, well, you know, I was I wasn't asleep, but I was kind of lying in bed. I was kind of resting. That counts for something. And also, if you count the hours around that, I could have still got, you know, maybe five hours sleep um, in total. Well, that's not a catastrophe for me. And then so these non-complaining bad sleepers tend to function very well in the daytime. And actually, even some of the physiological effects seem to depend on our um, expectations again. And that's really evident in the complaining bad sleepers. So, you know, when they when you have bad sleep and you catastrophize that, that's when you do experience things like the higher blood pressure as a result of your your poor sleep. Is all this basically just a message to your partner to stop being a whiner? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, a little bit. We've, definitely, <laughs> we've discussed it, definitely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it strikes me that surprise is an interesting part of this because one of the reasons we like, we like to know what's going on. So we want to be able to predict the future, and hence we have expectations. But 
surprise can be very negative, right? We're an unpleasant surprise, but equally, a, a gift we weren't expecting is a pleasant surprise. And so, yeah. so, the, so the, the the sort of the way that surprise plays out, it seems to me that in in many cases we we sort of want to mitigate the risks of bad surprises, and so we we start. Well, what is it going to be like so that I can? But surprise is a sort of interesting piece, and and I wonder your thoughts on how those two things interact. Mm, well, so I had a conversation with Oliver Burtman, who famously he wrote a book about. It's called The Antidote, and it was basically about why optimism is bad, pessimism is good, and so he. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. So he he you know describes himself as this kind of um, defensive pessimist, um, and I do think there is value in that. But then he also sees value in like the process of reframing that I present in my book because basically he said that defensive pessimism is it's assuming that those kind of negative beliefs are not going to actually have any effect on your performance. Whereas if they mm. do, then you have to maybe reconsider that position. And so that's again where I, I see it, the expectation effect, the message of the expectation effect as being like just kind of going to that midpoint where you're like open-minded and you acknowledge the uncertainty. And I think that's really important. So if there's a situation that could have like a good or a bad outcome, is to try not to get kind of too hooked up, hooked into like one or the other, but to kind of just weigh them up and, and to constantly remind yourself whenever you're focusing one or the other, that there's this whole range of possibilities. Yeah. Again, I'm, I just have to reemphasize, I love this idea of finding the midpoint, finding the middle ground. This is a, a wonderful message that is not about being the world's greatest athlete in, or, you know, rise, you, 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 if you're not a CEO, you're nothing. You know, I'm tired of books that, that present that message. I, I, I absolutely love the way you've approached this, David. Thank mm, you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank I you mean, for doing it. I do see with someone like Serena Williams, say, you know, before she retired, but she would often be like a, you know, match point in a game and she could still pull it back, even yeah. if that meant, you know, Winning that set from you know six uh, five love and then going on to win the next two sets yeah, like right. and I think she was probably applying this principle in that she was like she wasn't kind of focusing on either viewpoint she wasn't arrogantly assuming she was going to win but she also wasn't kind of catastrophizing this situation that would be pretty you know yeah. anxiety inducing for most players she was just focusing on moment by moment on winning those points which brings a whole nother element of that category, you know, kind of thinking about things long term. Oh, my gosh. It's it's part of, I think, many people who have um, sleep kind of issues. It's like you wake up and you go, oh, I didn't do this. And if I don't do that, then the client isn't going to be happy with me. And if the client's not happy with me, they're not going to hire me again or I'm going to get fired. And then, I'm, then if I get fired, I can't, you know. And so all of a sudden it just it spirals out. And so being able to tamper that to your point of, of, of yeah. bringing that together, I think, is really good. I do want to ask, because um, it's one of the things that Tim and I talk about a lot, and I know Christian, we've had conversations about this as well, is ethics. And so you bring up the point of doctors and, you know, it's part of their ethical piece of bringing this in. But what are there other aspects of uh, kind of this research that have some ethical implications? Mm, I think there are. And I, I think like the one that kind of really concerns me is about genetic testing. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there was a fascinating study from Stanford from the uh, Mind and Body Lab yep. that um, looked at the how giving people information about the kind of genes they carry can actually shape their physical performance. So, you know, 
these uh, participants were given this genetic test for the um, variety of the CREB1 gene yeah. that they carried. And we know this, you know, gene does have an effect on, you know, stamina endurance um, and endurance exercise. So if you have the good version, you tend to have better endurance, but also like some of the physiological measures seem, you know, seem to kind of um, contribute to that. So things like the gas exchange within your lungs, like the temperature, your core body temperature, you know, depend on this gene. Um, but what the researchers did, they gave the real genetic test, but then they gave the participants sham feedback. So someone with the good gene might have been told they had the bad gene, vice versa. And then they took another endurance test. And what the researchers found was that actually the expectations were playing a role independently of the genes they actually yeah. carried. So, And in some cases, actually, the expectations were more powerful than the gene. So in the exchange of carbon dioxide and oxygen within the lungs, you know, the expectations really mattered. Um, and I, I think that's like the danger if you get given, like, I don't think our understanding of gen genetics is necessarily great enough at the moment that, you know, we're giving people a true picture. You know, you can focus on one gene like that, but there could be lots of other genes that are equally important. But if you're, you know, you take this kind of test at home, then you're given the results and you're told, oh, you are good at sport or you aren't good yeah. at sport, then that's going to be really important for your expectations of what you think you can achieve and that will have ramifications. And so I feel like these genetic tests should almost come with a caveat of like, uh, and an ex explanation of the expectation effect. Yeah. Well, it, it reminds me of the Pygmalion effect, right? This idea of uh, the, the, the original research where they told teachers, oh, Christian scored really well. And, you know, Which was a total seven-year-old. Yeah. He was, you know, he scored really well. I mean, that's really unethical well, to start with, right? <laughs> really well on this uh, on this ability to learn. Whereas Tim, Tim, you know, he, he didn't quite do so well. And in fact, that wasn't the case at all. It was, again, they, they did the actual test, but it was, they just kind of shammed. It was a control test. And what they found is that after, you know, six months of actually having the teacher teach these people with just that was the only piece of information that they had that when they actually took the test again, Christian's score on that test went way up on the IQ test that he took because of the expectations that others had on him. And so that's a different part of this, but I, is it related in, in your way? Yeah, I think it is related. And, you know, I think the same goes for like the use of kind of IQ tests in schools, which in the UK, you know, some schools still have this 11 plus exam where, yeah. you know, you it kind of like plays a big a role in determining which school you go to, whether it's a selective school for brighter kids or whether you go to like a kind of secondary modern where, you know, anyone can go to that school. But I think, you know, those IQ tests do have some predictive power, but I don't think they have a great enough predictive power that we should necessarily be giving children that kind of feedback at such a young age because the the feedback itself could change their perceptions of their self-efficacy, their yeah. motivation. You know, it could create anxieties when they have later tests if they feel they can't, you know, if they feel that they don't that they don't test well at such a young age, then that could have knock-on effects throughout their life. So, yeah, I yeah. think this is something we really do need to consider. Yeah. I was wondering, since we are here at Abbey Road Studios, if we could uh, talk a little bit about your musical interests. Uh, do you have any favorite playlists that you're listening to right now? And it doesn't have to be an Abbey Road-related artist, by the way, <laughs> by any means. But uh, what, what, what are you listening to these days? Mm, quite a lot, actually. So... Um, 
someone I've just got into, um, maybe an eccentric choice, but Judy Collins's latest album. So. I think that's a fantastic wow. choice. I, I love that. How did you come to Judy Collins? Well, it was um, just kind of, I mean, I kind of loved her kind of music from the 60s and 70s, but then I was listening to her um, new album, Spellbound, which is her mm-hmm. first album. She's 83 now, and it's yeah. her first album of songs that she's written purely by herself. Um and, you know, like, I love the songs and I think they have so much wisdom within them. But I also think it's, um, it made me start thinking about this kind of age mindset again. Because I think, you know, in her 80s, she's still kind of testing her creative boundaries. And and I, I honestly think these songs are so strong that, you know, I mean, the, the album got quite good reviews and obviously she's established. But I honestly think if that was like a, a kind of much younger, you know, singer in her 20s, it would have got a lot more attention still. But because of our ageism, I think we kind of write it off as an eccentricity, whereas actually, you know, these are really strong songs and we should be celebrating in our culture, you know, people who are still, you know, doing these amazing things like into older age. I, I love that. Uh, when I was at the Conservatory of Music, uh, I, I was told by one of the professors that, you know, uh, by comparison, Mozart created his greatest material by the time he was 20, uh, Bach by the time he was, you know, uh, 28, uh, Beethoven by the time he was in his early 30s. So if you're not composing fantastic music now, well, maybe you just missed the boat. Uh, and and I think that this is a fantastic thing to say that we don't have to live by that narrative. We don't have to be under the pressure of that expectation that, well, if if you can't write any more songs, and, and here Judy has certainly proven that in a wonderful way. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's examples from lots of other areas of the arts. So like, you know, Penelope Fitzgerald, like um, mm-hmm. an incredible novelist. Well, she didn't really start publishing until she was in her 60s. And then she won like the National Book Award, you know, quite late on in that career even. So she you know, and she kept on like pushing the boundaries of what she was doing. You know, there were historical novels. There yeah. were, um, you know, she wrote one kind of set in, you know, Russia during the revolution. You know, she was really like, you know, she, I think like her creative output probably was the kind of strongest that she'd ever had in her life, even when she'd been writing for pleasure. And that's contrasted to someone like Martin Amis, who basically has always had this kind of view that old age is something that's a bit disgusting. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And then, you know, he, he joked about having euthanasia booths on every street. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so, and then he recently was saying in an interview how he could feel that his, what had been once a creative waterfall was kind of turning into a trickle of, (laughs) (laughs) and I feel like that, you know, he is, again, it's that stereotype embodiment. It's like, you know, putting those limits on yourself. But it's it's really interesting when you think about creative process, because we know intuitively there's no logic to it. You can have a creative inspiration that suddenly appears, you can have something that's built over a lifetime. And yet, we like to have these logical formulations. It seems to me a lot of what what you're talking about is our expectations come from, well, this is the way it ought to be, here's the model that we apply to this again and, and therefore we we know what that model is and then we apply that and, and then when the model doesn't kind of come out to be true we's, we're a bit confused by by the piece and and so i think as, as you were talking to him you know there, there are there are i think musicians that do you know, their first album was their best and then everything yeah, else is down yeah. and on the other hand there's other that, people that, that say, lots of albums finally like that, yeah. <laughs> finally they've got it together and, and neither strategy is correct. And I guess depending on what your expectations were going into that, you would either go, oh my, like if, if, if I've done one album and succeeded, I must be in that model of this is the first time, the, diff- the second album is going to be difficult. Or if I haven't, then maybe I have to switch to that other piece. But, it, but it's all sort of, it's predetermined depending, and, and you, could, you could make arguments for either route. 
the sophomore not, slump, right? right? Isn't that? I mean, that's it a, that's it's a, a big ideal thing. the expectation of you had a great first album. That second one's going to suck, and maybe the third one might get back up if, to something. If you get to the third album, if the, if the <laughs> label continues to support you that long, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, that's also what I think we often. You know, with these expectation effects, we don't recognize the role of our culture and how we actually, it might be that, you know, the, our broader culture is kind of determining this and making yeah. it happen. So with like artists who are getting older, well, they're not getting the promotion. So, no. you know, so it becomes inevitable that there's going to be fewer older artists who are becoming famous and who are, you know, visible to people to yeah. kind of break that stereotype so it becomes self-perpetuating on the individual level but also <laughs> yes. culturally yeah but on that, that but it, you can apply this into work you can apply this into you know family life you can apply all, all of these factors that come into play it's not just us it's it's how everybody around us is thinking that plays into our own thinking and it oh just oh we could go on and on david robson thank you so much for being a guest on behavior grooves Thank you for joining the Human Risk Podcast as well. (laughs) It's been completely my pleasure. Thanks for so many great questions. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with David, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our high-expectation brains. Isn't that the truth? Well, we have high expectations for how good these grooving sessions are going to be. I do. You do. I do. Oh, I, I always, always have, have pretty low expectations oh. of how well these are going to go. I think that's maybe no. just a self-reflection on like, oh my God, I, what can I say that is like better than what David's already said? I mean, my God, I don't know if we can. Well, we can't. And and that's that maybe it's, so maybe I do have a low expectation. But <laughs> what I love about our grooving sessions is that we're talking about the, the wonderful insights that we got from our guests from our perspective yeah. through the lenses of the practitioners that we have been you know we're what what does uh, neela seldana call it um uh pracademics pracademics you know? yes yeah is that, is that such a great term <laughs> and uh and so i think that it's wonderful that we just do it from our our place and and we bring our best selves to it our i mean we have we both have mindsets that are very much about making grooving sessions interesting and valuable and informative and and process through our through our, you know, through our, our through our lens there you go yeah 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 so so where should we start where should we start this grooving session on david robson so let's start with with just the the expectation effect because i personally have been fascinated with this for since when yeah when did well, when did well, you get couple cued into of it? years really i mean it started priming you know i've been super fascinated fan. with priming for a long time right. and then we had a conversation with john barge a few years ago and it was that the the sock piece where he was talking about when i was talking about i use socks to prime myself and he's like oh that's not that's not priming that's that's prompting and right. that got me to right. thinking and it was like oh well but it's a it still is changing how i'm responding and that led me to kind of thinking, all right, what's the difference, which got me into the expectation effect in, in, in various different pieces, how I expect things to happen. And we've talked about the wine studies and various different things for years, yeah. and those have always been great. But it actually probably goes way, 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 way back to probably one of the very first things that I can remember from going and getting my MBA is learning about the 
uh, Pygmalion effect, which was probably one of my first research crushes way back in the 1990s. I, I thought you were going to go back to when you were a wee little child. A wee little gro- child. <laughs> growing up in Iowa. You know, what a simple life you had. I would yes. say that if I was in Scotland, right? That's a wee little. <laughs> I can't do a Scottish accent. I won't even so, try. Uh, oh, so yeah, it goes back to the Pygmalion effect. Yeah. Oh, fantastic, which is a great example of that. But okay, but our conversation with David focused on some slightly different versions of that or, or some, let's say, different. Uh, focuses. And maybe we should talk about some of the focuses that that David brought up to us. Well, so Uh, I I loved, he spent, we spent a lot of time talking about stress and just the way, and to think how, how stress is such a constant part of many people's lives, all of our lives, in fact, but the effect that stress has on us is very different based upon, partially based upon how we expect stress to impact us. And, yeah. and this idea that we can change how the cortisol levels in our bodies, how we respond to facing a, a speech that we have to give in front of the executives, all of these things that just because of our mindsets on this is amazing to me. It just, well, again, blows me away. But you've never had to worry about stress in your in your own life. <laughs> we worry. I mean, no, I, I I I will have to. I'm probably not. I don't stress out about things as much as many people that I know. Maybe somebody on this this call right now. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> but you know, stress is still one of those pieces that I think everybody it impacts everybody. And again, uh, the idea that we can we can reframe how we think about that. And therefore, by reframing it, creating a new mindset for ourselves, we can have a positive outcome from that. The idea that the the sweaty palms that I have in front before going up on stage to make a presentation aren't necessarily reflecting how nervous and scared I am, but about how excited I am. Just that reconstruction of those physiological components of that faster heart rate, the uh, sweaty palms, the, the 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 shallow breathing, all of those pieces can come back into play. There have been times when I've been, when I've had a particularly big gig, you know, a, a, a new venue, a particularly large venue, a big crowd, something, something that sort of made this in a particular performance an important, especially important I know that the band, it's easy. It was easy for the players in my band to sort of look to me to be sort of the, okay, you know, you're leading it. So you have to get it right. Yeah. You know, and when I took that on, when I adopted that mindset, I was super stressed. Uh-huh. But in times when I, when I pushed that mindset off and said, no, 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 this is, we're still a band. Everybody's got their own thing. Every, we, we all have to do our own parts in order to make the whole sound work. That actually lowered my my stress levels yeah. uh, quite a, quite a bit just by saying no no there's five of us on stage so let's let's all let's all pull our own weight and I'm I'm in there doing mine but I'm one fifth of the whole story yeah you know those big concerts you did with what was it ten twenty thousand people kind of getting up there I can see never. that stress yeah. piece that comes out from there so yeah no yeah never no no <laughs> a, a, a big crowd for me is five hundred so <laughs> still five hundred people I mean that's pretty that's pretty. 
stressful. I could see where that happens. And again, you know, David talked about stress. He talked about sleep. He talked about sleep. exercise. Sleep is mm-hmm. a huge one. Sleep is, I mean, so many people have sleep issues. And so just this idea, and again, as he said, it's not, it's not a silver bullet. It's not a panacea just because you change your expectations about something isn't going to magically make that thing change. But it does have an impact. And if you can, again, examine how you perceive things, you know, this is one tool in a larger tool chest that you can use. So, well, what if we turn the focus to marketing? Because uh, there is a really important role that expectations play in in what marketing does when they're when they're marketing products or services is to help set that expectation oftentimes up front though not necessarily right sometimes yeah. it's 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 up front to help help the customers understand this is what you can expect from the service provider from the manufacturer from the from the product that you're going to be experiencing and those expectations i i think they make a big big difference on how we actually literally experience the product or literally experience yeah the exactly service. and and i think what's interesting about that is that I think for marketing or advertising, that the the role that people think they're doing when they're having when they're in a marketing position, when they're in an advertising position, isn't necessarily one about changing the actual experience that people are having with their product or service. That it's about informing them and getting them uh, motivated to go out and purchase as opposed to actually thinking about, oh, what I'm doing here has a impact on how our product or service actually is consumed. That the experience that people get from it can be influenced by how I talk about it. This is this goes back to our conversations with Jonathan Mann on the idea of the experience itself is really just one part of the total way our brains process and experience. The first part and maybe the most important part is the expectation of the experience. Yeah. Like what we anticipate going into that experience makes a big difference and marketers in general are underutilizing that part of building up to an experience, I think. Yeah, and I think Jonathan Mann was talking actually about that what we're expecting and that that is part of that journey again We've talked about this. We have the expecting part. We have the actual realizing part. And then we have the uh, memory part of this. And there's three parts to any experience. Uh, What is interesting is you can build that, you know, what I'm expecting to happen and that what I'm expecting actually changes then the real experience of it. Exactly. And that is this piece that I think is really powerful that we just haven't that marketers, that uh, advertising agencies haven't embraced. They haven't thought about this from that perspective, Mm -hmm. at least from my experience with this. And so to that point, I think it's really important for us to reconceptualize what marketing and advertising is. And you can change that as a, not only are you just getting people to try the services, but you're influencing how those services are actually then going to be um, felt or perceived by people. This goes back, Matthew Wilcox, right? When we talked to him, where he was talking about marketing's job is to reinforce a purchase that's already been made. 
Yeah, yeah. You can even yeah. do it post hoc, right? This idea, uh, again, we talked about I've experienced stress before going up on stage uh, to give a presentation, but I can reframe how I I look at those salient pieces, that sweaty palm, the, the heartbeat, everything, so that I'm excited. I, I view that as being excited as opposed to being nervous. Well, right. I think marketing can do the same thing about or you can reframe an experience with a product as that, you know, I, I have a, you know, electric car. I don't hear the room, room, room when I, when I take off. Well, all right. So that feels like it's not as kind of a fun car. Well, you can reframe how that message gets said is like, listen to the silence of the power or something. I, right. I'm just making that up off the top of my head. Obviously not a good marketer or advertiser here, but the idea of being able to then come in and look at what are those salient moments of an experience that people, that you can tweak to give them a different experience within it. I think that that's really well said, Kurt. I would call the electric car experience, now that I'm an EV owner as well, is the power of silence, mm. you know, that there there is that. And I love the fact that you know, we get in the car and Katie and I can talk to each other, you know, <laughs> without the engine blaring over us. And it's, it's pretty fantastic. Let, let's get back to mindsets because this, I think, is really one of the, the biggest parts that you can adjust your mindset with some intentionality, right? We, we have talked about intentionality a lot uh, in the 300 plus episodes that we've done because with some intention, we can go back in and, and rewrite the script for what we expect, how we expect it. And, and, and it's not just about having low expectations every time. And, and, you know, we were joking about that earlier, but I think a lot of it is the fact that our mindsets govern so, so much of, of what we're experiencing. And I, and I go back to a, an old apocryphal story about um, a, a man who has decided that he is, uh, actually, he hasn't decided. His children have decided, his adult children have decided that he can't live on his own. He's going to have to go into a home. Yeah. And, and he realizes that this is the fait accompli. He can't resist it. So he's just going to go with it. So he starts to adjust his mindset into, okay, I know that this is inevitable. I really can't take care of myself perfectly. And so kids pick him up one morning, the adult children, and say, okay, dad, we've got three places to go to look. And, and we think that you know one of them is going to work for you. And he goes into the first place and he just says, we don't need to look any farther. We, I respect the fact that you vetted them, that you carefully thought about it, that you love me. I'm done. This, this is the place number one. Thanks, kids. I love you. Let's, let's just call it a day. And because he changed his mindset to accept the fact that he was changing, that he was not in, in that place. And I, I love that story. I, I love that it wasn't a low expectation. He was really just adjusting to the reality of the world around him. Yeah. And, and I think that we would be better off adjusting to the world around us sometimes rather than just trying to have the world adapt to us. Yeah. Well, mindsets. <laughs> so we all have mindsets, right? I mean, yeah. about pretty much every experience that we're going into, we have some expectation about what that experience, what that kind of process is going to be. And those expectations about that, that mindset that we go into this moment influence how that moment then occurs. And so if we go through life without examining what those mindsets that we hold are, 
then there is no power that we have to say, I can influence that moment because of the expectation I have going into that moment because I don't don't take any time to reflect and to say, what are the mindsets? What is my belief? What has what has my upbringing, my culture, my community, my ex- past experiences taught me about this in this type of situation, in this context, so that when I go in, I'm just a, 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 you know, a passive bystander to all of that, as opposed to being an active participant in shaping, going, no, you know, this yeah. is what my community says. This is what culture says, but I don't need to buy into that. There are obviously other ways of looking at this, and I need to choose which way my mindset. Now, that's it's real easy to say that, real easy to, to say we should all go in and examine our mindsets and to change those. But again, we have years and years, decades sometimes of, of this influence, and oftentimes it is an invisible influence. We don't really understand all of the components that go into shaping this. But at least let's make that effort. I think that is the big piece. So how did this grooving session play up against your expectations, Kurt? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't meet them at all. I, I think it just was like, my God, I thought we were going to be so, so like radically, you know, insightful that it would, you know, just change the world for people, for all of our listeners, you know. The leaders out there who who can now lead differently because they're setting expectations up for their for their team about the culture and the organization and the vision that they set and and making that happen for policymakers and looking at the policies we make and how do we how do we change our the the expectations around this policy in order to make it so much better about the 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 product designers the ux people you know making sure that wow this isn't just about how good our product is we have to make sure that the expectations people have on it are going to be such that it's going to maximize their enjoyment and the and the utility that people get out of this it, and and i don't think we made it i don't know maybe we did <laughs> Uh, cue the anthemic patriotic music there. Holy cow. Well, it, it met mine. Oh, uh, so because I have low expectations, so I guess. <laughs> All right. Well, well, listeners, if your expectations were met or exceeded like Tim's during this episode, please drop us a note. Let us know what you thought. Your comments might help us create expectations for us as we work toward a future of making behavioral grooves even that much better. And most importantly, we hope that learning a little bit about the expectation effect can help you this week as you go out and find your groove. 